Welcome to Biblical Higher Ed Talk, where we tap into the wisdom of leaders and practitioners of biblical higher education for the advancement of colleges and universities teaching the way of Christ in the modern world. Each week, we'll tackle topics around leading your organization, expanding your impact in the world, and deepening your faith through Christ-centered conversations. Ready to make a difference in the lives of your faculty, staff, and students? Then let's begin our journey. Today on Biblical Higher Ed Talk, I sit down with Simon Jeans, co-founder and executive director of Christian School Management, to discuss the current and future states of Christian K-12 education. What's the future, and how can we build meaningful relationships with our Christian K-12 colleagues? Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Philip Dearborn, president of ABHE. And we are honored to have as our guest this week, Simon Jeans. Simon is the co-founder and executive director of Christian School Management, a 501c3 focused on reversing what he describes as the tragic decline in Christian education in North America. He's been involved in Christian K-12 education since 1977 and has authored seven books since starting CSM. And I've invited Simon to talk about the current and future states of Christian K-12 education. Post-pandemic, it's been interesting to observe, and we'll talk through this. We've seen a spike in K-12 school enrollment, and uh, we'll unpack uh, the why behind that uh, in our conversation today. So welcome, Simon, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Philip. It's a pleasure to be with you and a privilege. So to kick off our conversation so our audience can get to know you a little bit, tell us about one defining moment that God used in your life to propel you forward. Such an interesting question. I'm drawn back to that year, 1977, when I was coming to the end of my first degree. I was studying in England at Oxford in the College of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, and wondering what I was going to do with my life. I'd had a lot of fun. I I enjoyed my studies. I enjoyed studying, but I had no idea what I was going to do. And those were the days, Philip, where a degree actually meant something. You could take your degree out and nobody really cared what it was in. It just meant that you were educated and educable. And so you could get job offers from all kinds of different industries. And as I went around in England to look at different jobs, people kept offering me jobs, but it was a very depressed kind of a time. And the defining moment was picking up a Sunday newspaper and seeing an ad. And the title of the ad was Men Wanted. And I thought, well, I qualify. So what else does the ad say? And it was based on Shackleton's ad where he was looking for people to go with him to the South Pole. And the ad offered extreme amounts of work, almost no pay, Christian vocation, and life everlasting. I went, I'm in. You know, I was 21. I was ready to go. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And that was God taking me completely out of my comfort zone, completely out of my family background, because I was on the base of that ad. I was going to end up traveling to Canada and joining a Christian community in Alberta. And so God works in mysterious ways, Scripture says, but the mystery is not 
a shamanic mystery. It's it's a mystery of wonder. And so when I think about mystery, I I don't think about mystery in a, well, that's that's a sort of a Sherlock Holmes kind of a mystery or an Agatha Christie. I I think about it as the wonder of our lives. And, And when we look back on them, the intentionality of God and giving us opportunities and hoping, I think, in his kingdom, that, that we'll step in into those opportunities. And I think that's what, as Christians, we're always trying to do. Yeah, and to never lose that wonder. And I think uh, you reflecting back to 1977 as a catalytic moment for you that really set a trajectory forward for your life to be where you are uh, today. Yes, yes, indeed. So you've been involved in uh, Christian K-12 education since 1977. So if I'm doing the math, it's close to the 50-year mark uh, of being involved in in, uh, Christian K-12 education. And K-12 Christian education really hasn't been around much longer than that. So you've been part of it, at at least in this this modern era of Christian K-12 education. Give us your high-level summary of your, as you look at it, as what you would say is the current state of Christian K-12 education. I think it has three aspects. One aspect aspect is is extremely hopeful. There there are wonderful Christian schools that are really setting a path and engaging in their communities, their culture, demonstrating that their lights on a hill, transforming agents of transformation in the lives of children. That's one group. There's another group that is so to speak hunkered down. They are not quite as hopeful as I would like. <laughs> that doesn't make it right or wrong, but I just think that when you hunker down and you try to build a barrier between yourself and the reality around you, that children are not necessarily best served in that kind of an environment. And while schools are always somewhat of a cocoon, and appropriately so, nonetheless, they also have to bear witness to what is actually happening in, in, in the, quote, real world. And I don't mean real world in the sense of the Christian school, even as a cocoon, is not real. It's absolutely real. It, it bears witness to the love of Christ. What I mean is that we can't not engage in our Christian schools with those things that create turmoil in our world. And each decade has had its own turmoil. You think about the decade of the 60s when I was growing up, uh, enormous turmoil, deaths at universities, demonstrations, war, the 70s, the fear of the nuclear holocaust, the 80s. You know, you, you go decade to decade to decade, and, and each has its issues that it has to deal with, and the 2020s are, are the same. We have to deal with these issues. And then there's a third group that is declining and closing. That's the group that CSM is particularly concerned with and has a care for, a compassion for, and an almost an obsession with, because when Christian schools decline and we ask why, there are a few good reasons. One is that wherever they are geographically, they've just run out of people that they can serve. That's just true. We migrate. So if you think about the great migration from the inner cities, for example, with the closing of all those industries that were outsourced, many, many Christian schools close because of that, and appropriately so. Sometimes Christian schools close because their mission is done. It's finished. They've completed their task. And to live is not enough. You have to live with purpose and live well. So existence is not sufficient. You have to have mission. And once that mission is complete, then you're done. But that's not the story behind most of these schools. And by most, I mean 90% plus. For most of these schools, they are 
closing because they don't know what to do. And that's where CSM comes in. So I think there are these three groups. There, there are those which are iconic. There are those which are trying to hide. And there are those which are failing. Are those equal thirds without having to pull out the, the, the spreadsheet and count? What does your gut tell you the distribution of Christian schools and in, into those three buckets? I'm a little bit of a researchy nerd, so I, I have no idea. I just know that the third group, the closing group, is enormous. And I know that because we see the data come in decade after decade. Uh, and since the 1950s, we have gone from a dominant force in education in the United States uh, to a, a, a just another also ran force. So you're up in Canada right now. You work with schools both in the United States as well as Canada. Would you say that that's the same in both countries? Canada politically and culturally is so different from the United States. Uh, on the one hand, we're separated by an imaginary line you know, the 49th parallel. And on the other hand, you cross the border and it's very different. And so educationally, it's very different. I I think that uh, Christian education in Canada is sort of in stasis. It's neither expanding nor is it declining. So as you've you've been on uh, numerous, I can't imagine how many Christian school campuses that, that you've been on through the years uh, as you've been working with them. If you were to distill and say, okay, here, here are the top three repeatable or common mistakes that you see Christian K-12 institutions making, what, what would you say are those three top common mistakes? Great question. Top three. And oddly enough, not particularly hard to answer. So the, not in, in order. But the first is you don't charge enough. A bizarre thing to say, because as Christian schools, we want to remain open to the entire family of Christ. And so the statement, you don't charge enough, sounds like, oh, well, then you're just becoming elitist. But here's the truth, Philip. The moment you charge a, charge a dollar, you become elitist. The Financial Times recently said that most Americans can't manage a $400 emergency. So if you charge a dollar for tuition, you've already cut out a vast amount of the population. But the paradox is that the more you charge, the more you can help those people. And so there are people who are wealthier, who can afford it, and essentially they subsidize those who cannot. But beyond that, if you don't charge enough, you can't hire the best teachers, you can't provide the best education, and you can't provide the kinds of resources that are necessary. And parents will not put up with mediocrity. I might be a completely dedicated Christian parent and desire 99% to put my child in a Christian school. But if my public school is better, I'm going there. And there are many, many fine, fine public schools full of very, very highly dedicated teachers, many of whom are Christian. Not a majority, but many of them are Christian and they infuse that. And depending on the area, it can feel as if it's a certainly a values-based school, if not a faith-based school. And so we live in a competitive marketplace. Make no mistake about it. The Satan is roaming around and has no interest in Christian schools doing well. So our commitment to excellence, in some fashion at any rate, is partly predicated by whether I have enough money to run my school. So that's number one. It's sort of like you're running a podcast with bad microphones. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is sponsored by ABHE, the Association for Biblical Higher Education. 
at ABHE, bringing the love and light of Christ to the world is reflected in our drive to see our member institutions flourish, leading them to a time of success for their institution and giving them the tools and insights they need to look toward the future. Interested in learning more about membership with ABHE? Visit us at abhe.org or send us an email to membership at abhe.org. ABHE is your partner committed to advancing biblical higher education for kingdom impact. Now, back to the show. There's a trickle-down effect, right? It's, it's a, it's a, if you don't charge enough, therefore you, you can't offer the services, therefore you cut here, you cut there, and it's on qualifications of teachers or advanced education for teachers or athletic programs or Perfect. whatever else. It has its trickle-down effect, and that's actually a, a kind of a counterintuitive. I, I, it's interesting, but it makes total sense, is we don't charge enough, and therefore there are all kinds of consequences to it. Oh, you've put it better than I have. Thank you. So number two. So what's this? Yeah. Number two is that we have a theology of poverty in many of our Christian schools. And I think in many of our Christian churches too, rather than a theology of prosperity. And I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. That's a totally, totally different thing. But this notion that somehow as Christians, we have to beg, borrow, and steal rather than rely on the utter goodness of a gracious God, and that somehow we don't have enough because there isn't enough, rather than understanding that God has surrounded us with great opportunity and great prosperity, particularly in North America. I can't speak for other areas of the world. I have no idea. But we are awash in prosperity. Despite all the headlines, despite the maybe psychological, I don't feel good during COVID, during inflation, whatever, nonetheless, every generation, we become more and more prosperous. That's just a fact. We are surrounded with it. And so we often have this feeling that somehow as Christians, and it's not, it's not about money per se, although money is a big piece of it, it's about this attitude that somehow we have to make do because we're Christians. We have to, so to speak, suffer. And, and I don't think that's the biblical meaning of the word suffer. That's a, I think that's a totally different theological concept. But this idea that somehow, because we're Christians, therefore we have to go around in sackcloth and ashes, it, it's just corrosive. And, and so we have to move from, a, from this really pessimistic view of, of our world back to our faith which is a resurrection faith. We already have the victory. We don't have to win it sometime in the future. It's already done sometime in the past. I mean, think about how David and Isaiah and Jeremiah, had the victory hadn't been won for them, and they still had to be hopeful. Yeah. They had, they so, had I mean, a tough I'm, time I'm, being hopeful, but they still we, had to be. Yeah. But we've got it. We, we do. We do. And I just, I love that message so much. We within ABHE talk about flourishing institutions, yes. and I often say, if if our goal is survival, if our goal is just to get through the week, or just to get through this budget year, or just to get through, it's this minimalistic perspective of just getting by. And I understand there are all kinds of circumstances in life that get us down, but the meta narrative, the story of who we serve 
ought to be exactly what we need in order to flourish as Christ followers in every aspect. So I, I love exactly, I'm, I'm tracking exactly with what you're saying. So that's number two. Number three, and again, these three are not in order. They actually link together with each other in different ways. <clears throat> number three is that the governance of a school, that group of volunteers, which acts as the board. And I think you have that in higher education too, if I'm not mistaken, that group and its connection to the head of school or principal or superintendent, whatever that person is called, who's in charge of the school constantly is breaking down in our schools. And while that's a complex issue, it is maybe the top reason that schools are, or it feels as if they're in constant crisis. This backwards and forwards between governance, the board of trustees, the board of directors, and the operations leader, the head of school, the principal, the superintendent, is a key leadership challenge for our schools. And here's the truth, Philip. It's something we don't like to talk about in, in Christian circles. And I find this in churches as well, because we're all supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ. So we like to use that terminology. But under the surface, there are a lot of power struggles going on. And, and we don't talk about power nearly enough and recognize that as human beings, we have sometimes it feels fixated by the notion of, well, if you have power, then I don't. Or if I share power, then somehow you're going to misuse it or abuse it. Or if I give up power, God forbid that I should give up power, then how can I possibly trust you to have power? And at CSM, we're, we're constantly going into our boards and saying, folks, it's not that you don't have power. You do. Your bylaws give it to you. The, the, the legality of the system gives it to you. You have it. Can, can we just give, get that conversation over to the left-hand side of the room and talk about what leadership in a Christian institution is about? And it's about this, that Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, took off his outer garments and took a towel and knelt down on the floor and washed his disciples' feet. That, that's leadership. Jesus said it over and over and over again. I came not to be served, but to serve. He said to his disciples, your job is not to lord it over. He actually uses that expression, lord it over others as the secularists do, but follow my cross and to do what I did, to, to, to follow in my footsteps. And our board's and I hate to say this because they're full of wonderful people really trying to do a great job in 60 hours or 80 hours a year. You know, it's, it's not that they have bad motivations. It's just that for some reason we have this thing about power and we, we, we won't give it up. Yeah, yeah. That's so well said. And I think institutions that so much of what you say in, in K to 12 education is the reality in private biblical and Christian higher education. It's amazing. If, if I were to say, what are the top three mistakes? I would say pretty much consistently exactly what you talked about. Perhaps it's something that we struggle with, uh, you know, even 
you know, I do board consulting with churches and I see the same kinds of things, good, well-intentioned people, but just because you're good and well-intentioned does not necessarily mean you know how to effectively lead at the board level of, of how to steward the resources that, that God has, has given to us. Wow, that was, that was fantastic. One of the observations I've made, and I, I really don't know the answer to it and curious what your insights are on this, the vast majority of Christian K-12 graduates, once they've graduated from 12th grade and are making the college decision, the vast majority of them don't enroll in a Christian or into a Bible college or university setting. Why, from your experiences, your observations, why is that the case? I think that there are a couple of couple of factors at play here, Philip, and, and probably a couple doesn't mean two, it means three or four or five. One, one is that when we interview parents, and, and uh, at CSM, we, we do face-to-face interviews with hundreds of parents a year, hundreds of students a year, many faculty, many administrative leaders, I mean, literally face-to-face. We also do surveys, so we get a lot of survey data. And families are, are very interested in seeing their children move on to another arena, which offers that kind of, they're not looking for a cocoon anymore, but they are looking for a Christian worldview. I prefer Christian to biblical. I I think Christian is maybe a little more expansive, but a, a Christian worldview where their children are going to be educated, taught within a college that where the professors are able to come in and pray with the students, are able to come in and articulate what it means to be uh, an intellectual uh, within a world which is not Christian and never has been. I think that the desire is there. So that there's enormous opportunity. I believe that profoundly. I, I, I see no reason for that not to be true. So what, what happens? Well, one is that most Christian schools have very poor or no college advising. The ability of the parent to even know about what's out there, what options there are, is pretty limited. It speaks to that need of schools, particularly the smaller schools, but even the larger ones, because they don't think of themselves as college prep in the sense of a 30, 40,000 tuition school. And so they don't just, they just don't have those resources. Uh, but nonetheless, the ability to advise children uh, about what's what's possible in the world in, in education. I think that's two. Uh, three, I think that there's a secular stress in our schools, and I don't I, I don't fault our schools here. I think it's hard to get away from it on career um, without placing it in the context of vocation. And the notion that we are called is not something that a secular university can provide. That they can say you have talents and they fit here or they fit there, but they can't say that God wants you and that God has a meaning and purpose in your life in this particular area, and you should consider God's call on your life. So I think that notion of vocation, I think that Christian universities have to powerfully articulate that to the schools. So the the fourth one is that I, I don't think Christian universities reach out. I go to conferences all the time. I see the same universities all the time, very few of them. And wouldn't it be great if the university, the Christian university could actually collaborate because I know resources are tight and they could actually send two people who would represent all the Christian universities in ABHE, just as an example, 
uh, and set up a table at every Christian school conference in the nation, uh, U.S. and Canada, in every state and province. Rather than everybody doing their own thing, which is a, a consuming curse amongst Christians, we hate working together for some reason. We're still fighting Reformation battles. We're still in our own niches. So evangelicals and Catholics and Lutherans and Baptists and Seventh-day Adventists, they have trouble talking to each other or even recognizing each other. It's the worst possible blasphemy. You think about the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John, that they may be one. Well, we forgot that prayer pretty much right off the bat. So that there's, I, I think that there's, a, there's an enormous opportunity for Christian universities to, to be visible, but they're going to have to collaborate because you don't have enough money to, to do it yourself. And so there's an opportunity there. And then the last one, of course, is just, are you good enough? And are you competitive? Because if I want my kid to do really well in the world, appropriately in the world, then I, I want to give them the best start. And I just spent $10,000 a year for 13 years. And if I'm going to spend another $30,000 a year for four years, I, I want excellence. And can you demonstrate yeah. that? Yeah. The the other thing that I found, and those who, who know me know I, I hammer this home frequently, is the value question, which is exactly what you talked about it in, in terms of excellence. The But I think the public is also asking for value. What do I get for the investment of resources? And we're, we ought not to shy away from answering that question. And I get the tension of the academy not wanting to boil down the experience of uh, a four-year college degree as a product, because there's so much more to it than, and I and I get that argument. Having said that, it's still very real resource that parents and students are putting into their university or college experience that we ought to be able to say if if you spend those dollars, here's the value that you can expect. This is what you will get out of your investment of resources. But for some reason, we're scared to answer that question. Well, it, it's, it's a misunderstanding of spirituality. Uh, spirituality goes from top to bottom. It, it, it's not separated from. It, it's part of. It, it's intrinsic to. And so if I'm a Christian university, I need to be able to say that when you graduate from our, our university, 97% of you are going to get jobs in the fields that you started in. I, I mean, I need, I need to have a placement record. That's pretty basic. Uh, I, I need to be able to say that many of, our, many of our graduates go on and continue to serve in their churches and their communities. You know, I, I should know that information. I should be able to say that of everybody that applies and comes in first year, 70% graduate in four years. That's better than the secular universities. Or 80% or 90%. And everybody graduates in, in, in six years. I need to be able to say that if you're an underserved population, that we have support structures in place to ensure that even though you come in and you're not really prepared, nonetheless, because of our support structures, we're going to ensure that you're successful. I mean, these are basic promises that as a parent and as a student, I mean, I'm 18, remember, <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not an idiot. I, I want to know that that's so. I, I want to know that my, my professors are published. That doesn't make them great teachers, and often they're terrible teachers, but at, at least they're distinguished. 
I, I want to know that they're doing research. I, I want to know. It doesn't You don't have to be a research university. And I appreciate that many Christian universities are not research universities in the sense of the University of Pennsylvania or, or, or whatever. But, but nonetheless, am I current in my field is a key factor. Am I aware of, of what's going on in the world or am I stuck in a world that's 30 years old? Uh, so the value proposition is I have no idea why a Christian university would not want to embrace that and say, here's the outcome. Jesus embraced it. He said, here's the value proposition. You know, follow me and get eternal life. Well, that's a pretty good value proposition. Surely as a university, you can come up with something. <laughs> At least something, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, well, listen, Simon, we're down to our last minute, and it's almost not even fair to ask this question. So we're really going to test your capacity to distill uh, down to a, a very tight response. But as, as you look to the future, you've been in it for 50 years. Uh, you look to the future. What do you see? And when I say future, I would say K to 16. So, so add on the, the college experience for Christian K to 12 education, as well as for Christian and, and biblical colleges and universities. What's, what do we look like 50 years from now? If we embrace Jesus coming to the disciples in a closed, locked room, and what happened after that, if we embrace that as Christians and apply it to our educational institutions, that there's nothing but a bright future. We are lights on a hill. People are attracted to the lights. And the more secular society becomes, if it is becoming more secular, the more attractive Jesus becomes. Wow. So well said. Simon, thank you for sharing your wisdom uh, and your experiences with us today. If you're interested in finding out a little bit more uh, about what Simon does with CSM, uh, I would invite you to look at the uh, episode uh, description, and we'll put a link in there uh, for the email address for Simon, as well as uh, to the website for CSM. So until next time, stay kingdom focused. Thanks for listening to Biblical Higher Ed Talk. For more, follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're delighted that you chose to spend a part of your day with us and encourage you to reach out to us with feedback, topics, or guests for the show. You can get in touch with Philip, your host, via LinkedIn or at biblicalhigheredtalk at abhe.org. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is a production of the Association for Biblical Higher Education in association with Westport Studios. Views expressed on this show are those of the participants and may not reflect the views of ABHE or Westport Studios. Bring light and life to your biblical higher educational organization by inquiring about membership with ABHE at abhe.org. We'll catch you next time.